welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. This is coming, this is the latest episode of Inspiring Futures, coming to you very early Brooklyn time, 7 a.m. Um, being recorded at 7 a.m., not necessarily coming to you. Um, to, uh, so I could speak to uh, two guys over in Amsterdam, um, Alex Bennett-Grant, who is the CEO of We Are Pi, and Mark Lester, who's the head of strategy. Thank you, guys. We've been planning this for months, plotting it for months, taking a while, but eventually we got there. Thank you. Thanks very much for having us, Ed. Thanks for having us. Uh, circumstances got, got in the way. Good circumstances got in the way a little bit, but um, may come talk talk about that as well. Uh, so, Alex, uh, thanks for joining. And could you give us a little um, resume, this accelerated resume, what it was that got you to where you are today? Um, good luck and a big mouth, I suppose, is yeah. the short answer. But the long answer is... Um, I studied media uh, and history uh, in the UK and then in London. And then I uh, went into London door to door to media companies, production. For me, media at the time was production, uh, like uh, television production and things like that. And I got a job there. And for about six to nine months, I was sort of like a runner and earning about £9,000. And I couldn't afford to live off that. Uh, and so I tried to find the next best thing that was in media, which was television, but it was sales, which is basically uh, a terrible, you know, poor, poor cousin of um, being a trader. Um, and I realized I couldn't, even though it paid better, I couldn't do that. I was terrible at it. I got almost got fired for forgetting to book Kanye West's first album. Um, and I, I luckily I quit on the same day they were sort of coming for me and went to do an internship at Lowe's in London. And that was my sort of step into the industry. And I, from there, I sort of uh, worked my way from Lowe's to McCann to Wyman Kennedy, and then eventually left and launched Pi about 10 years ago. Awesome. Mark, what's your, uh, what's your journey? So uh, I started off um, back in London, and I was sort of a guy that was sort of torn between going to advertising or doing public policy. But I decided I wanted to try and travel the world a bit and, you know, working for the UK government wasn't going to be a great way to do that. But I found the perfect gig. My first gig was working on uh, UK government briefs and the agency was doing stuff like advising on smoking cessation, and obesity epidemic, and I had a remit around teacher recruitment. And so it was sort of perfect nerdy for anyone that reads The Economist and loves social policy and all that type of stuff. It was abs and getting, you know, very deep into behavioral models of change, all that type of stuff. It was uh, a, gr a great, great, you know, space to go and learn all of that. But then I sort of, uh, after I head off to, to New York after um, after a few years of that and uh, mainly mainly just for a, with a sense of adventure and um, spent 10 years getting the shit kicked out of me in New York and learning a lot um, and uh, ended up at RGA um, over there and just just got, I think I, I worked across, I worked comms pine roles, I've worked um, brand strategy roles in quite um, old-fashioned ad agencies and I've, and I've worked at places like RGA and just try to gain as many of those different skills as I can and, and try and pick up as many different perspectives on strategy as I can. And then 
uh, washed up in Amsterdam, uh, New York burnout two years ago, um, was welcomed into Alex's loving arms and I have been working at Pi uh, uh, for the last two years. Alex, so um, setting up on your own, uh, Craig, we are Pi, what was that, a leap into, did you have a very firm idea of what you, it was you wanted to do or was it something you kind of learned as you as you went about things? I don't trust anyone that says they have a firm idea of what they wanted to do. Um, or at least if I do come across them, I'm suspicious and then very jealous if I'd realised they're authentic. Yeah. Um, no, we, it, it was me and a couple of mates who were at Wyden Kennedy for four or five years and we'd done all the things you can do at a place, uh, you know, a brilliant place like that. Um, and, um, you know, we'd experienced the biggest budgets you can get in advertising, the most creativity you can get. But we sort of, um, this was like, you know, the, in the thick of the 2008 crisis, like 2011 in Amsterdam was the sort of like epicenter of it because Holland was quite protected um, because it's a wealthy country um, from the initial shock. And then by 2011, you've got like half of the canal buildings are empty and you know all of the cultural institutions are sort of losing their funding and um and it's you know and that was having effect of course in the place we were working at the time as well um which seems like a stupid time to to quit your job but we sort of saw that there might be uh, a way to create a, a a business which was part um sort of create a strategy which is the sort of thing that um, you know, we knew that was of great value to the clients we've been working with, um, but but also but but you know, sort of went slightly beyond traditional media and was more sort of diverse with the creative output, um, more flexible. Um, um, and 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 then the third thing we sort of really wanted to do was just have a real um, grasp of the of of the of the city of you know of the place we were living because we've been expats for four or five years. So all you do is travel, which is excellent fun especially when you're in your early to mid twenties. Um, but it left us all with a sort of sense of longing for an understanding of the city we lived in. So starting a business uh, from scratch in Amsterdam felt like a great way to, to do that. And, and why, why Amsterdam? I mean, it, it's an interesting, obviously there's an interesting geography um, proximity. It's also well recognized that it's sort of been the birthplace of many an interesting creative agency. Um, so in a, some ways it's quite competitive. I would just given that, you know, given London, you've got scale and size and you've got diversity of agency types, whereas Amsterdam is really known for like, oh yeah, these, that's where the renegade maverick agencies, that's where they, they are. And maybe that you, you like that moniker, or maybe um, you just like the place, I guess it's, it's it's, it's an interesting choice. It's a choice, right? It's a choice. I think you've answered the question, Ed. <laughs> um, I think you have. Um, I mean, it's those three things, really. Um, you know, when you live in Amsterdam, you can't believe how lucky you are. Mm. Uh, you just can't believe it every day. Mm. Um, you know, we're feeling that now uh, as much as any time in the lot. I've been here sort of almost 14 years. Um, and you know what it is is this sort of incredible gift of uh, a creative community, uh, not the words, the actual reality of it. 
you know, because the words of it are sort of you know, meaningless in the end, if you're sort of fighting constantly with each other for business or sort of being highly sort of competitive uh, um, creatively. But there really is a community in Amsterdam and you can pick up the phone, give or take to most, you know, of the industry leaders here. Uh, and I've always felt that was the case, even when I was young and, and new and didn't know what I was doing. So that that was one thing that kept us here, you know, cycling to work, quality of life, etc. Um, the the other thing is, you know, I got the international marketing bug. You know, it's really different and uh, energizing to uh, try to connect the dots either across Europe, EMEA, or globally as your sort of core proposition. You know, um, and as you know, of course, you, you, you miss a little bit of that sort of oh, you know, wouldn't it be fun to do one of those local activations, you know, uh, a, cr a crazy sort of um, you know, m tiny thing that can become big um, and capture local culture. Of course, you miss some of that sometimes, but the opportunity to sort of travel and work with brands that are trying to crack mm -hmm. Asia or Europe or expand out of Europe or, you know, trying to do truly global work, which is meaningful. That's why, you know, that's why we, we started Amsterdam. That's what Amsterdam's really here to do. Um, and yeah, the renegade thing, as you said, it's uh, it's just, I don't know, if renegade, I mean, it's sort of like a, a freedom, I suppose, uh, a freedom because there's no hierarchy, there's no heavy hierarchy. There's hierarchy, but there's no heavy hierarchy. London and New York are excellent epicenters of creativity, but they are also fundamentally de de defined by New York sort of, you know, a corporate business swagger and London um, cultural sort of class system uh, pressure. And Amsterdam doesn't really have that. Mm. Mark, um, how, do you, how, do you do, how do you do this? How do you do um, international, pan-European, global, um, being small, being nimble, it's 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 the kind of classically been the reason global agencies with massive offices. I mean, I remember working at McCann and, you know, the most important presentation we could make was to show a global map with and telling people we've just opened it in Cambodia. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, totally. well, it's it's uh, it's a great point. I think um, Look, look, we definitely don't have that map of our, all, all of our satellite offices. But I think what we're benefiting from quite a lot right now is there are a lot of like pressures of consolidation in the, in the industry right now. And clients are often just looking for some pretty simple solutions, you know, and, you know, they, they want to keep partners. A lot of people hubbed out of a place like Amsterdam. But I mean, we're working with, you know, clients from across the world right now. And I think... I mean, the 2020, I suppose, is only going to have helped this, but there is just a greater sense of remote working and about how you, a more flexible way in which you can tap into talent. You know, we've got relationships with strategists and creatives across the world that we can kind of hit up. And so it's going to be really interesting to see, but I think it could be that that sort of, you know, certainly this, uh, a decent wave of business where that satellite map becomes less and less relevant. And it's more like, do you, can, can you show us that you've, got a, a more broad and flexible talent network in, um, in each of these markets. I would say one big learning for me has been coming from working in the States for a long time, where there is, when you do global work in the States, it's kind of like, we've come up with something for the States and the rest of the world can have it too, I think is, it was an honest portrait of a lot of the work that we did. And then coming to Europe, 
And, you know, one of the first things was uh, me and Alex working on um, in sport, you know, some massive uh, sport and retailer over his like sort of equivalent of Dick Sporting Goods. And me and Alex, you know, sort of one touring, doing this sort of like, you know, crazy races tour of uh, uh, awkward corners of Europe and staying in uh, travel hostels or whatever. But then also ending up in these rooms, which, you know, where there's representatives from each European market in the, in the room and really getting that sense, oh, no, this is the EU. You know, this is, it's, it's, a, it's a negotiation between these really different cultures. And it felt so different from the rooms that I was in in the States where there's a clear hierarchy and there's political battles and all that kind of stuff, but it's it's sort of um, monocultural, you know, in 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 some ways. Whereas actually, there was you know this sort of battle between these, you know, this negotiation between the Germanic perspective versus the Latin Romantic perspective versus the Anglo perspective, you know, mm-hmm. has been a really interesting thing coming back to Europe to remind myself of, and uh, you know how you how you sort of navigate that and, and find great yeah, work amongst great. it. Yeah. I remember being part of those dynamics it's, and it's really interesting because you've got the you, you've got some of these countries who feel passionate about their own individuality and the fact that they are truly unique but then there's this issue of well if they want to play with the big guys uh you know they got to throw their cards down on the table and and, and you know there's got to be some kind of compromise otherwise you can never access the budget at scale um, so, you know, yeah. it's just really interesting dynamic between those parochial interests and, you know, winning for the team and getting access to those uh, European or gl- global budgets. Yeah, it's just interesting. It has to be done by consensus here. You know, like a lot of the times you're asking markets to buy, you know, whereas you've got that sort of more autocratic model. And certainly a lot of the piece of business I was working at in New York, whereas here you're sort of slowly creating something that is so inarguably good that everyone wants to be a part of it, you know, which I guess is kind of, it's sort of this small taste of the, the, the project of the European Union or something. And, it, you know, this is a similar type of uh, sort of negotiation almost. So how, how do you, you know, um, it seems like you, there's a there's a sort of a, la- a trust ladder with agencies that you sort of have to climb up these steps. In each step, you gain a little more trust. And it's sort of like, comes from time and experience um you know is that is that something that's still relevant or can you sort of come out of nowhere and i mean guess you know with a track record but be a new entity and and is the market changed so radically that you these new possibilities or do you, do you still have to go through the apprenticeship to get that credibility I don't know what you think, Alex, because, yeah, Desperados and everything. Yeah. I, 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 it's a difficult question, actually, Ed, because we've been around for almost 10 years. Yeah. Which, which shouldn't be the case um, because you're not supposed to be relevant 10 years later as an independent mm-hmm. agency. Um, you're supposed to be more like a rock band. Um, that sort of. You, you know, should have done your solo album now. You know, there's definitely been albums being created at the pie, but I haven't been invited to participate. <laughs> um, and you know, you sort of burn uh, fast and bright, and then you know, you sell you sell your rights to the majors. That's the sort of model, right? And it's probably the same across most uh, industries in creativity. Um, and so, but what we've learned is that um, it does take time to um, 
to build your reputation on an international scale. Uh, if we were in London or New York and with a hot new thing, it's a different, it's a different game. Uh, and, you know, there are plenty of great examples of that over the last 10 years in London. Um, and I'm sure, you know, and I've also seen it in the US and other places. Um, and so you can come in thick and fast, you know, management team from X launches Y uh, and creates, you know, incredible buzz. Um, and, you know, three years later, they're sold. And, and, and that was a great story. Um, whereas we've sort of had to play a slightly longer game because you're trying to get a reputation um, in the different cities in Europe, uh, you know, in New York, in LA, um, which are the sort of, you know, where the hubs of um, brands are based. And so we get briefs from San Francisco, we get briefs from, you know, um, from, the US, from New York, um, we get briefs from Paris, Berlin, London, Belgium, you know, so that does take years. Um, but once you get it, it's quite uh, a powerful thing because um, the sort of uh, the hard ladder you have to climb um, by sticking at it uh, means that you actually have got quite a broad um, reputation, you know. And, and I say that knowing that Pi, in relative terms, is tiny and uh, probably not very well known. <laughs> so it's a sort of like you know, it's a sort of balancing act. One of the one of the things that I think you know for we looked at um, this time last year, we were, I was looking with Walk at um, a strategy survey, you know, that did the annual kind of state of strategy. And um, it was really interesting looking at the findings, which seems to be this weird dichotomy of two things going on, coexisting. One was sort of the cutback in strategy alarm, at an alarming level, you know, this uh, talent exiting strategy and um, I just, you know, I just talked to Craig and Bridget, formerly of AMV, last week. Um, you know, two massive names um, now out on their own. Um, and um, but at the same time, the demands for strategy seemed greater than ever. And I, it was, it seemed really interesting that clients need strategy, but agencies are jettisoning it. And um, that just, you know, it seems crazy. Um, so but I know you guys wanted to talk to Mark a little bit about your commitment to thought leadership and the importance of it and publishing things and having a point of view. Can I just say before Mark says anything, <laughs> I just think that it's, I always find this fascinating, um, you know, it, 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 it takes different forms at different times and different, you know, um, clickbait headlines <laughs> driving the agenda. But, you know, the death of account management, the exodus of strategy, the, um, the sort of, um, you know, the dismantling of traditional creativity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, what we actually do see and what the reason why, you know, Mark and the team have done such an excellent job is we do see a hollowing out of the middle you know, and, um, and and we sort of launched our business. It's one of the things we didn't claim, but we very quickly discovered and therefore sort of made it, which is, you know, brand is very much alive and well. Performance is very much alive and well. Uh, everything in the middle is dying. And for that reason, if you're sort of stuck in the middle, um, you know, you, 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 you can see an exodus uh, in different forms. Um, you know, luckily for us on international level, strategy or creative strategy in the broadest sense is the product you know largely uh, whereas if you're trying to sort of do a local campaign for a supermarket i can imagine 
you know, there's there's movement there. But yeah, um, I don't know what Mark thinks, but that's certainly been our sort of experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, I, I definitely, I remember that walk report and I, I, I've definitely experienced the same thing, you know, at other agencies. I think we're, we're definitely doubling down on strategy and what we're seeing a sort of a lot of our growth there right now. But I think we're a much more nimble and flexible business and, and we've sort of set up products so that we've got, you know, we can operate like a consultancy and, and that was part of, you know, the founding story of the agency and, and what Alex set up with Lego and other clients. And so I think sometimes clients really want that real strategic consultancy. Um, and Pi has been able to deliver that. I think not all agencies have delivered that form of strategy. And I think clients have seen that from them, you know, and they're, they're, they're offering some pretty downstream forms, forms of quote unquote strategy. And I think a lot of that's getting jettisoned a bit or they want it paired back and, and more efficient, but they're really de- they're still really desperate for people that can connect all the dots. And I think probably on the agency side, we should, have some reflection of how well we've done that. I mean, I definitely came of age in that era where everything was specializing, everything was its own agency with its own strategists. And I think ultimately that was, we, we did a poor service to clients during that period. And they, they need big strategic thinkers who understand all of their ch- you know channels, but also their consumers and their business and they can connect the dots. And anyone that can deliver that, I think is probably well um, placed. And I'm, I'm sure they're, the two great names that you mentioned that Spinoza Consulting will do very well for their ability to do that, you know? One, a slightly more nimble model in that they're not coming with all the agency um, overhead baggage and two, you know, their ability to actually think think big strategically and give clients the most important forms of advice when they're drowning in all the options and stuff right now, you know? And even clients got big questions right now about how they even earn money, you know, if it's, you know, whether there's new types of commercial projects they should be launching and some of those trickling down to agencies, you know. Yeah, I think I think the commentary we had last week with those guys was that advertising is such a narrow lens with which to filter through strategy. The, the yeah. strategy has a, a, a way bigger impact um, outside of the confines and constraints of, of we've only got one tool to use and that's, a, that's an ad. Yeah, I think we've got to think bigger. You know, effectively where we put our big bet in is We've created uh, this offering, which we call the New Society Rules, which, uh, you know, I've chatted with you about a bit, Ed. And effectively, we're sort of calling it cultural transformation. And our our sort of view is what the digital transformation guys did a great job of is elevating the conversation at agencies. And they said, actually, digital strategy is bigger than knowing the latest formats on Facebook. It's about understanding how you make money the opportunities offered by um, online offerings and then understanding things like organizational change, like all these really big existential questions that clients are going through, like what does the DTC model really mean for me? And the best agencies have done a really good job of elevating their offering through that digital transformation. But we see a bit of a gap in the market around cultural transformation, which is there's this sort of debate that's happening right now, which is like should effectively, I think it's often framed as, either everything's changing or nothing is. And either every ad you make should be an incredibly sincere, intense piece of woke washing, or you should just totally ignore these massive societal trends that are, and we sort of believe that's a bit of a false dichotomy. And ultimately when you just view it at the altitude of advertising, you're just missing the bigger picture, which is we're going through the greatest period of social change since the sixties. 
And not just CMOs, but CEOs are wrestling with that. They are under pressure from their investors. They are under pressure from their staff. They are understanding what the hell white perspective means. It's not a term they've heard before, and suddenly they're realizing it's you know super important. They're wrestling with important issues around you know free speech and everything in between. And so there's all these incredibly important areas, cultural transformation, that need to happen within their organizations. And if you don't, if you just look at that through a comms level, you are servicing them very short. And currently, there's very there's no one for them to turn to. Actually, you know, they're not going to get it from Accenture. Mm-hmm. You know, the digital transformation experts are rightfully and valuably functioning on a, mm-hmm. a special function. But often, you know, we're having this, a lot of really interesting like clients that you know conversations with clients that are, have pretty big questions about how to grapple with some of the really big societal issues that they're facing. And it's not just through the lens of an ad. Yeah. And currently they have no one to turn to. Yeah. Know? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I had a, con- um, a conversation a few d- days ago, it was going to be a podcast, um, with someone from uh, SY Partners. SY Partners really, that's what they do, change, organizational yeah. cultural change. And we were talking about this notion of um, the disconnect between a purpose statement that says, you know, we value diversity, blah, blah, blah. We, and then you you flip to the board, the images of the board, and it's all old white guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's just, you know, and, and that's just not tolerable anymore. You know, that, that sort of um, the, the image of the board has become sort of a lightning rod. And... Yeah. I think it's going to be really interesting. We had this conversation about what else is going to be a lightning rod, you know, that you just can't, you can't speak out of both sides of your mouth anymore. And what happens is there are really these two pressure points. One is yeah, a generational consumer pressure point, but the other is competitor pressure points. Yeah. You know, yeah. If your key competitor starts really acting um, you just look like an idiot, you know. hundred percent. And I think that the pressures are being exerted on those companies from a, it, this consumer pressures on them, but there is this pressures from their investors and some pressures from their staff too. And I think the, they're feeling those pressures equally right now, you know, yeah. honestly, because, because some of it's market, some of it is market drivers. And I do think that there are ethical drivers in the market, sometimes overstated, sometimes understated, mm-hmm. But I think sometimes what the, I certainly think in 2020 on on race, for example, what the CEOs were feeling most was, you know, it was it was industry investor and staff, you know, like it was it was these internal pressures. But th- those are no less for them, you know, and they they have to respond to that. And a lot of them didn't have any type of toolkit through which to to educate themselves or any type of roadmap or or, or sort of advice. And one of the things we, you know, on, on race specifically, one of the things we know is like representation is the bare minimum, you know, like it's the bare minimum. And we actually, I think, met this moment where there was a, a genuine conflict between um, representation and respect. Because what happened was, you know, you know, incredibly important events of last summer. And then a load of people racing in to try and quote unquote meet the moment. But by just by put, by making the faces in their ads more representative and in doing so had incredibly disrespectful relationships with black talent, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's, you know, it's not about just putting people, 
you know, in front of the camera, it's about putting the right people behind them and making the right decisions and making sure that you've got a quite deep understanding of what things like white perspective mean. I think that's what's been really difficult for companies as well, you know, is just to understand culturally how deep-seated some of their um, some of their notions are. And I think that's, that's not limited to race. It's one incredibly important area, of course. Um, but there's a whole series of areas where, you know, companies are grappling with some, some pretty... It's much easier to figure out that you need to sell stuff on a website and to figure out your model than understanding all the changes around how you need to operate to 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 reflect to reflect your times. You know, I think that can be pretty tough. Yeah. Alex, any anything you want to add? Um, well, I think that you know, for me, the last year has been uh, the closest thing to coming out as I've experienced in my life, um, which is both incredibly daunting, uh, includes uh, joy and grief and exhaustion and, uh, and touches all parts of your life, um, even if you sort of only wanted it to touch one. Um, and that's sort of the experience of being black and uh, of, uh, in my position, but I imagine in any position in the last year. Um, and sort of the, it's almost like the sort of the thrill um, is also the, the sadness because the thrill is discovering your voice and exercising it and connecting to new people all around the world and having meaningful discussions and, and being encouraged to do so uh, and not feeling like your job's on the line as a result or your job or, or, or in probably my case, uh, client relationships and industry mm -hmm. relationships. Um, but, but, you know, it's also very tiring um, because the third question, the first question um, is, is it has been easier this year, you know, should we represent, should we um, change our behaviours? Um, you know, second question, how can we do that? Um, or, or how are we getting on with that? And then the third question sort of comes in like, but yeah, but, but you know, you know, it, it very quickly becomes an all, all lives matter type of conversation in the corporate world because, you know, organisations need to structure things. And this conversation is coming off the back of the Me Too movement, you know, three to five years ago, which is still only at its infancy as a integrated part of the way we organise businesses and the way we and where we communicate and, um, and set, set boundaries across gender. So you know, you realize a year out, they're actually, you're sort of at the very, very, very beginning uh, of something, a meaningful change. And that can be quite exhausting. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's it, you know, but, but, but I say that um, the coming out is still very special. And I say coming out because everyone thinks this is new, but of course it's like, it couldn't be older as, yeah. as a sort of, uh, as a cultural theme in any industry, especially in Europe. Um, I was saying earlier today that, you know, on the particular topic of race, I, I, I sometimes say that the US is the front line and Europe is the spiritual home. Um, and, and that certainly is, is, is the experience that we have here. So yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on and it's great to be a part of it. And it's great to be doing meaningful things with brands and other agencies. Um, it just takes a lot of energy and requires one to be both a professional black and, um, and, uh, a strategist, <laughs> essentially. Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, agencies just aren't very good at doing things for the long term. They, they, they you know, there's, there's not a history of R&D, you know, there, there's not a history of making long term commitments. And it's, it's very apparent that this has to be a long term commitment and that you're not going to be able to short circuit um, a meaningful response instantaneously. And um, it's interesting just talking to agencies in the US to see whether that actually becomes an excuse not to do anything. Yeah. Um, or whether they really have to put a stake in the ground and, and make commitments. And it's very interesting to see um, the mix of people who are putting stakes in the ground and the types of things they are doing. Um, because it's about a series of initiatives and it's about trying to do something that is long-term, but also has um, uh, points in the pathway that you can say we're making progress. I think that's really important. Ed. I think that I remember, um, I think like 2008, approximately, I read an article in, in I think, Wired magazine from Elon Musk uh, about, you know, Tesla, the early days of Tesla and, um, and it's sort of, very uh, hard-hitting hard interview and he described trying to build Tesla as eating glass um, you, know, uh, you know enthusiastically eating glass every day because that's how difficult it is to change something that is so inf infrastructural institutional commercial you name it uh, the, the auto industry uh, and all the supporting infrastructures around the auto industry of which we are in the world of marketing a supporting function Yep. Um, and I think that I, I, that always springs to mind to me because, you know, I'm, I'm across several initiatives, um, including my own business, <laughs> you know, um, which for which it feels like eating glass to try and make these changes. Um, you know, it's no easier for us to do that on the inside of Pi, um, uh, you know, operating in the European uh business landscape with the talent landscape that it is that it is for us to do it in our ads uh, or anywhere else and so you know trying to build out new um, talent programs to get new talent into the industry which we're doing in Amsterdam with this program called plus plus one is both invigorating and like eating glass every day because it's really really hard mm -hmm. trying to you know make big statements in the industry and then uh, follow up to your point with um, uh, indications of progress uh you know is like eating glass because it's like you know it's uh so it's it's really difficult but you know if that tesla reference is anything to go by it it might just be the rocket fuel or the or the or the jolt of absolute transformational positive energy that this industry needs mm. um to 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 create future freshness and future um growth um, because we've maybe exhausted a lot of the other sources, you know, um, such as like we can technologize our way out of this. Well, we've made all the apps and we've made all of the websites and we've, you know, uh, created all the banners. Uh, and so we might have reached sort of <laughs> full penetration of tech. So that finding cultural change uh, opportunities really feels like the future. Yeah, I think, I think you know, you mentioned earlier this, this, this idea of... Um brands being the important thing um and you talk about like, the hollowing out of the middle and i think people have become 
the most important thing now um, because we, 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 you, you can't operate in a pandemic environment without understanding people. You can't understand diversity in any depth without really grappling and understanding people and their issues. Um, and, you know, that sort of classic planning, it's, you know, it, you know, if you go back to the roots of strategy, you know, the 1960s London, we're in these ivory towers, there's social change going on all around us and we're basically clueless. Um, so we have to, we have to go out and do the hard work. Um, and I think, I think we, we're hiding behind data. You know, we've got all this data and it's not really telling us a lot and it's no substitute for, for informed conversation. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely spot on. And I think there's so many parallels to now to, as you talk about the, the sort of invention of planning and Paul and all the, you know, King and all the original guys, because they were working with consumer packaged goods businesses and in the midst of a social revolution. And they had to take these guys who had invented like shampoo or something and tell them, oh, it's not, it's, you know, it's not just about shampoo. It's about what it feels like to have amazing hair, you know? And we're now in the midst of a different social revolution, walking into technology companies, trying to convince them it's not just about data or, you know, this, this feature in your app, you know, it's about the way it makes people feel empowered or, or improves their lives. And, and, it, and it's still about trying to find the humanity in things. And I think in many ways, there was a great model built on that that's got torn up a bit. You know, I'm sure they're still working the same way in the halls of PNG, but we're working with a lot of different companies that don't, they don't have that historic respect for agencies. They don't, you know, they don't work the same ways. And we're sort of reteaching those things in the midst of a period of great change that we're all, all trying to understand. So I totally yeah. agree with you. It, it comes back to those skills about just like, can you can you just understand human beings in a really important way? And can you go and explain that to the CEO, the boardroom and, and everyone else so that they can, they can, in a way that they can wrap their head around, you know, and that's classic planning. You know? Yeah, I also think that, you know, the work that um, we've been doing through NSR, which is based on conversations with, uh, you know, deep, deep conversations with uh, people at the forefront of some of the cultural changes that are affecting us all, um, is, you know, feels sometimes sort of at odds with big data, you know, but but what we realize is that, you know, when we walk into Heineken, Nike, Lego, whatever, um, Amazon, whatever business that we might be working with, you know, quant, which is probably the sort of, you know, the, the front end of big data, um, is, is universally available. You know, uh, massive quant studies, they've all got them, you know, um, some of the larger brands. And if you want to be working with the big brands that are sort of leading the pack, you can be rest assured they've got their quant um, packaged up. But the confidence, time, and humanity to actually have meaningful conversations, not behind a screen in a, in a qual um, group, but actual real conversations, confidently with people who are, the, who are leading cultural change to see what's going to happen next, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a different skill. You know, it's sitting in an ivory tower and gathering, you know, like sucking in data in its purest form and then asking people to figure out how to connect it all together and make it meaningful 
is 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 of course a foundation of the modern economy but the ability to yeah actually figure out what might happen next as opposed to what just happened is is something that you know most people still grapple with so that's you know what i think i see when these guys go out into the field or anybody you know who steps out of I mean, I've had conversations recently with Unilever who, you know, seem to be putting that at the front and centre of their business as well. You know, like getting, I think I remember Ogilvy talking about this, you know, five or so years ago, getting out into the field <laughs> as if it was some radical idea. But it actually is quite radical because, you know, well, A, we're all in lockdown and B, it takes a new, it takes classic, you know, human skills to really figure out what's going on. So, um, yeah, a lot of value there. I just heard an interview with the uh, head of programming for Netflix globally. Um, she was interviewed on the New York Times and they were asking about the big data question. Now, I think we've all seen sort of articles sort of saying Netflix has got an algorithm that can just create shows, you know, and she had a much more honest perspective, you know, to me anyway, she's like, look, the data is super helpful. It really helps us understand what is working, how it's working and why it's working. But ultimately, you don't commission shows that way. You look at the data, and then someone makes a call. I, you wouldn't have made Queen's Gambit. Yeah, you, know, you can't. Ju- you can't just. There wasn't some algorithm that said a, ch- a show on chess is going to be massive, guys. And you know, there's. But what 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 we knew looking at the data that was like under you know the classic underdog stories are really important, and there was core themes in yeah. that show that could resonate. And we felt like there was a case that supported it. The data is really helpful. It's really helpful. But the idea, I think where people got into trouble is just making out like big data can create an algorithm which will create all these systems for you. And it's really human decision makers in partnership with great data make better decisions together, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk to you guys about the about the last year, what you feel um, have been your biggest learnings. And you know, like, how do you, protect a culture when everyone's remote and how do you talk to clients and you know the really interesting things seem to be happening just in the way we're working and uh i'm kind of interested in your thoughts on what stays and what goes out, out of this as we return hopefully back to some kind of normal normalcy um and connected to that what does the office become what does the agency become because i've, I've been really interested in this idea i heard that of, of kind of like the showroom the agency is now the showroom because if if um if you can do you don't want to do the same work that you can do at home like why, why commute so it better be different like so any any thoughts you have on like what what you've learned how you, you do how what you've what learnings you're going to take forward uh, from the experiences you've had over the past year and um, what things are going to have to, to change, what changes and what stays the same, basically. I mean, from, from my perspective, running a business, um, it, I think we're very lucky. I think we're very lucky, you know, and it's not all um, smart. A lot of it's l- luck. Um, you know, we're lucky to have a business of about 40 people. Um, as opposed to a business of <laughs> thousands. Um, so that, you know, protecting a culture um, of, you know, a couple of 40 people uh, means that you can have a chat every week with everybody. Um, um, you know, we don't always, you know, individually live up to that, but you, you can create, you know, uh, regular heartbeat moments uh, that are real human interactions. So that's been the sort of a key thing for us. Um, we're very lucky in the sense that um, we discovered 
you know, it wasn't like a, a radical discovery, but we discovered that, oh yes, we are the ideas company that we claim to be, as in our clients are coming to us through the pandemic to help them fix their brand strategic questions, uh, which, you know, include execution, but are very much about where should we go now across Europe globally? Uh, how do we pivot? Um, and we need you guys to answer that question. And I say lucky because I suppose, you know, uh, agencies in their traditional sense are also finding that actually all they made money from was, was production and uh, everything else was a bolt-on. And so, we're, you know, we're, I think we're quite lucky that that wasn't the case. And so those conversations are still very, um, still very deep, still very uh, critical uh, and still very interesting, you know, as opposed to being, you know, like, oh, what's the next COVID ad is the only sort of conversation we're having. So I think that's kept the team buoyant uh, to a certain extent. Um, you know, the future of the office um, in our context is interesting because we sort of live in a village uh, where it's a sort of short cycle ride from, you know, the office to home. Uh, and so that sort of interaction between, you know, where you work and the sort of, the, the sort of intimacy, let's say, and openness of Amsterdam creative culture means that those lines are not as big and as blurred. Uh, and so it doesn't feel like this crazy sort of concept of going back to big HQ or making it back into the city for the first time. It actually feels like, am I gonna cycle down the street uh, for this meeting, uh, you know, with all the precautions to have that chat and then cycle back again? I might catch the rain on the way, but that's okay. Now, I feel like that's to a certain extent, um, the data experience. Now, we have also, uh, have to deal with, and we even talked about it this week. Um, okay, what's our second or third phase response to COVID? You know, like what's our remote working policy? You know, Salesforce says, be gone with the office forever. And we sort of go, oh God, are we Salesforce? No, we're not Salesforce because, you know, the, the clue's in the name. Um, so, you know, there is a culture to protect. Um, and there were moments last summer when the rules were relaxed that we did manage to have our social distance barbecue in the garden. Uh, or have a couple of people on the agency boat um, and those little moments really make a difference uh, for the show running of of uh, the We Are Pie. Yeah. This podcast is, a, is an implicit advert for Life in Amsterdam. <laughs> you know, yeah, sorry, is, I think you're going to be inundated with the resumes after this. <laughs> that one, one uh, not a uh, prediction or a learning, but a polite request would be for the death of the open plan office. I just... I. I you know, I worked in a lot of those spaces in New York and I just think it was the worst design idea of all time, you know, and it just, it killed productivity. We all welcomed it because we wanted to kill the cube. But, you know, I think we sort of, sometimes the, the you know, the medicine's worse than the disease. Hey, And it was the, just the open plan office is like the, it was just one of the, one of the worst ideas ever for me. I thought for anyone who, whose jobs involve deep focus, it, you just couldn't work at the office, but you were forced to come to the office. So, so much of your time just had to go into evenings and weekends and stuff. I think we're in a fortunate position where, um, you know, as Alex says, you know, our office is a sort of con converted house down on a, Amsterdam's most famous park and it's a totally different type of working environment. And I think it's much more conducive, you know, to, to, to work, but that's, as people re-examine offices, I think it's time to take a step back and look at open plan offices and, whether they were really the, the yeah, I mean, just the, just the visual for me is like rows and rows of people sitting behind screens with headphones on. 
yeah yeah just trying to trying to drown on, out all the distractions yeah. desperately you know yeah and they're all on slack and you're like what what's going on here this doesn't yeah. really make any sense and i thought one of the the beginning of the pandemic i i thought this um interview with a photo editor at the new york times magazine was so instructive it's just like i don't know what to do because we had a room and we put the magazine as it was being put together it was physically lived in a room where we yeah. assembled it i just thought oh, that's, that's that's so true to our business you know yeah. how, how do you work without having that physicality yeah. and and um what could that become if that's such a core part of how we work how could that be more interesting yeah. you know and and more inspiring as a as a as part of our work lives i think the show the, the showroom thing is interesting and i think if if people are spending less time you know if it's a two-day three-day split type thing and it just allows you to you know turn that space less just functionally rows of people and more you know in the same way the retail design has shifted where you're like i can get a lot of the functional stuff done online so when i go in i actually want you know something that enhances the experience i think it would be interesting offices went that way and potentially you know beneficial um if you i think it sort of it, it defines what a business is uh what the office becomes right so um, you know, take that Salesforce example. If Salesforce says forget about it, then that business is not. You know, it's about sales and online e-commerce, and you know, and that can be done you know, largely remotely. If, like us, your business is culture and cultural change and strategy and creative strategy, um, then you know, culture plays a big part. And I think that, not in all senses, but in many senses, being able to get together with the crew. Um, you know, you know, a couple of times a week, um, whether it being large or small groups, is just, it's just, a, it's just, a, it's a really nice sort of energizer, as opposed to like you know, plugging into the system at your sort of uh, at your desk with your headphones. Which I remember coming, seeing that for the first time in San Francisco, and just being alarmed uh, and in like sort of in awe until I realised it was sort of a bit tragic. Um, so I think you know, again, not wanting to promote Amsterdam too much, but there is a sort of sense of you know, oh my goodness, you know, the sun's out today, you can probably tell from my face being <laughs> sweltering. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the whole city is trying to figure out how to safely get on ice skates and skate around the canals that have now frozen over without A, falling in, and B, creating a, uh, a COVID <laughs> shitstorm. <laughs> but, you know, that's the sort of, uh, that's the sort of the microcosm we're operating in right now here. Um, and that's what we want to protect. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think the other the other question is we're sort of right now we're all in this sort of equitable situation where um, most offices aren't really open, and um, so we're all in the same boat. Uh, but then you've got this idea that we all have to be empathetic to our employees, and if someone does want to work from home four days a week because they have issues with kids schooling and stuff like that, you ought to let them. Um, so you might get this weird two-speed world where you've got people who are actually want to come to the office and do go to the office, and then those who have legitimate reasons for not being there, and they may miss out big time. You know, that, that, that over time, you know, that uh, being in the office, we all know how important it is. Um, I think it's. I think what you're touching on is the is is not a, it's not a work question. It's just a mental health question. Yeah. Um, you know, you can call. It, 
eventually, of course, it's a career question as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's already happening, right? You know, it's the, these these questions are open questions, but the answers are already being demonstrated every day. Mm. Um, and you know, who knows where it will go? Um, I, th I suppose. Again, it's a bit like that sort of like trying to figure out on a mass global scale, which we're all sort of trying to do, and we naturally do as, as strategic minds. Mm. Whereas just yeah, getting back to the to the real inter individual conversations and figure out how everyone is. That's actually where we're seeing the real challenge, you know, like, okay, I haven't spoken to this person in my business for six months, even though I see them every week. What do I want to do about that? You know, um, I feel like that's the real question um, that, you know, that we all need to figure out how to answer and if we need to answer that. I think interestingly, it's, it's going to be young people that want the office the most. Absolutely. And it's, the, it's, it's the sort of counterintuitive thing that you learn, of course, they're the most digital, but you know, you're showing up and you want to make friends. And, you know, a big part, I think, of why I picked the, a career in the agency world and advertising world was because I wanted to meet really interesting people, you know, that I wouldn't otherwise have had the chance to, to meet. And they'll be keen for that. But I think whatever model we land on will support it in some way, you know, even if it's that there's less desks and you book a desk and it'll be all the, you know, that graduating class of kids coming in, you know, that will... Um, be the ones that are actually in the office every day and, you know, driving the the, the socialization. But I think as you get a bit older, you're a bit like, oh, I quite like working from, I don't actually hate working from the comfort of my home and having time to go walk with dog. Or yeah, I mean, it's been called like this uh, post-grad, post-grad, you know, like the, yeah. the idea that you, don't, you need three years in the office to really accomplish your kind of comprehensive education um and to build those social networks and without it you you you're not a complete person i want to yeah. throw this thought out at you because i um, it's increasingly disturbing to me i'm a huge i'm a huge follower of soccer as we say in and you say football and i cannot look i say open the newspaper using a old metaphor without reading about another story of racial abuse online and i, I just what, do you, what it's, it's sort of like we've got we've got this um, technology that is just it's now it's now sort of eating itself. And what what do you think what do you think um, is, should be done about that? How do you know you've got the Black Lives Matter movement? You've got players kneeling down and, and you know and, and acknowledging that that racial abuse needs to be stamped out. And then ninety minutes later. You've got Twitter, you know, play these players getting abused. It just seems like, you know, just this disconnect. Is there a is there a way around it? Do you think is the? I think you know, from my perspective, there's there's a good thing and a bad thing about it. You know, the good thing is this has always been the black experience, if you if you want to use that reference, yeah. and so uh, you know, it being um, exposed in a time where Western society is open to um, the questions of how to change it is, you know, it can, it can only be a good thing. Mm. Um, you know, it happens in passing in whispers as much as it happens on Twitter and, and Facebook yeah. comments. Yeah. Um, but I think that the bigger question, and Mark, Mark was actually bring, brought this up yesterday, you know, this idea of communities and fandom and business and brands um, is we're just at the sort of beginnings of trying to figure out how to manage the society 
which is sort of has Tourette's um, and, and, and just wants to sort of scream and shout all the time. Um, and, 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 and that's the only sort of mode of communication. So figuring that out is going to be, especially when it comes to brands, is, is, a, is a tough old question. We've worked with Lego for years um, and, you know, they had to figure that out years ago because they worked with kids and they've had a pretty strong uh, and had to figure out a pretty strong way of communicating with kids in forums and stuff like that over the last, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years. And so there are, you know, best practices out there, but yeah, who knows what goes next. I think it is, it's a, it's a really awful name for a really important thing, which is community moderation. But effectively, all types of communities are moving at least partially online, and that includes football fandom. And it's changing the conversation. You know, it's, it's changing the way that conversations happen and people come together. And effectively, the community has been very poorly moderated. You know, there's been very little rule. I mean, we've just seen Parler, obviously, get sh shut down over and it, what, it, what they didn't have was a total absence of moderation what they did was they had a moderation policy that was in the hands of their users but because they had an extreme right-wing base they, they, their users you know approved death threats to, to democrats you know but um it was one interesting model of like should jack dorsey be making decisions should the community be making decisions should you have a registry body that's helping make decisions you know those are those are pretty big things and I think that this question of community moderation, whether it's in the world of football fandom, political sphere, on social media, is going to be one of the defining uh, questions in the next five years. And I think a lot of the, it's going to be really, really big in the conversation around breakup and, and uh, moderation of big tech. I think people are, regulatory bodies are going to move into it. But I also think what's going to be, I think if you want to get inspired at all on this issue, go hang out on roblox you know it's the four billion dollar franchise that every nine to twelve year old is on and god god if they aren't doing a great job like of course you can pick out horror stories from any community but um it's really sort of charming to see how they've some of these games have created spaces that are actually really great and there's a lot of research out there showing how kids often prefer it to the offline world because there's less bullying, it's less toxic, they don't have to worry about the look and they can be themselves. So I think there is a world in which digital communities are better and where they are. And, you know, things like football fandom that have will have a foot in the digital world and a foot in the real world can get better. But this question of how you moderate communities and set them up is going to be a really, really defining one over the next five years, you know? That's cool. Okay, so the final uh, final uh, sprint to the end, sprint to the line. Um, inspiration. What you know, you, you you called out some interesting things. You know, you, whether that's the uh, diversity initiative in Amsterdam, whether it's going back and reading Elon Musk's article in two thousand eight. Give us give us a few things that you know cultural cultural things that that some of the listeners. What's inspired you in the last six months, four weeks that, that could be good points to look at? People to plug into, podcast, whatever, whatever it is, anything you got, I'll listen. Well, I'm, um, I'll, I'll take that one first and give you some time to think, Alex. <laughs> but um, there's a few spaces that uh, we've been digging into um, a lot recently. So one is um, the nature of modern manhood. Um, we've been thinking about a lot and there's some uh, there's some great stuff out there I just saw a trailer for uh, a documentary called the Steelers about um 
the first um uh sorry it's a gay it's a gay rugby team and it's a story of a guy's journey through it and it's a really great story about how you can incredibly fiercely compete you know on the pitch and and be a drag queen off it you know and um really challenging sort of uh, some prevailing notions of manhood and uh that's a great piece to go and um to, to, to go and go and uh, uh go and check out and then um we you know we've been looking a lot in anti-racism space as well right now and i think so so many great references and you know, we just look at going through stephen queen's small act series which i think everyone should should, uh, should should check out and um so lots of great you know lots of great stuff in that space as well we've been inspired on cool Alex, I, bought, I bought you some time to think of thinking better references than me i haven't got any good references uh culturally um but um spring to mind because the thing that's sort of been the most um the biggest impact on me in the last few months has been this um, talent uh, program that we've been building um, where we're talking to young um, candidates from Amsterdam South Oost region, uh, which is sort of just outside the centre um, and largely ignored uh, from, you know, on, in the corporate world, but is the sort of epicentre of um, Dutch and Amsterdam's sort of cultural um, force uh you know in everything from music and and, and and fashion and beyond um and so i've for the first time in 13 14 years i've actually been spending time down in that area you know um that's blown my mind because what it's it, you know it's it's like it's it's so um it's so refreshing to hang out with young uh, uh people of color black kids in their communities uh, they've got an art centre down there, which is amazing. They've got this place called Plus Prospect 11, which is a community centre. And they hang out, you know, in the same way that I would have hung out when I was, you know, sort of in my late teens in community centres, which are very, they're very uh, local. <laughs> you know, that sort of awkward community centre building that you've almost, you know, you know the smell of it and you know the sort of like the, the, the style of it. And being back in those environments, hanging out with young people who are, you know, sort of trying to build their, futures is very inspiring for me um, and you know reminds me that every step beyond my increasingly small bubble um, is, is a worthwhile step um, um, you know, and, and, and gives a lot and just reminds me how much this industry still has to uh, to gain from uh, talking and inviting more people in. That's awesome. Um, Sorry. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I was going to say, I feel like the hottest cultural reference on earth right now is Flock Together, the black bird watching collective that they, they were part of that Gucci, uh, Gucci partnership. I, I tell you, that's, I think that's in everyone's presentation right now. That's the one that's in everyone's deck. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys, for an awesome conversation. And uh, I apologize for my brain not fully functioning uh, this early uh, East Coast time. Um, but you guys, uh, filled in admirably for my uh, lack of sharpness. That's our job, right? Huh? That's our day job. We just apply. <laughs> our, our yeah, yeah, so it's great stuff. Um, exciting to hear what you guys come up with in the next few months and uh, and, and see more stories. Um, you definitely, you know, definitely interesting stuff going on. So um, thank you for sharing um, and thank you for taking the time. And I will let you know when this uh, goes live. So thanks. If you could make us sound great, that would be great. Yeah, just take out the stupid bits, please. 50% of it. <laughs> <laughs>
This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.